Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a bright but cool autumn day here in the capital is Brian Dorr. Brian is the CEO at Safe Regeneration Limited, a social enterprise based in Merseyside that was established in 2000. Uh, Brian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject from that angle. Just because it's proven okay. to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves heading up a social enterprise, Brian, to what extent has it changed things? I mean, our approach is, is, is wide, um, you know, Ranging from you know running a community pub to to supporting other social enterprises to to grow, um, and so it's been as you'd imagine, like just been in place over the past few weeks and um, months, and so we've very much had to kind of think uh, on a multitude of levels, and so our, our first thought was around uh, was was thinking about others around us and how they were coping with the situation and we, how we could assist those to kind of keep keep the head above water. Um, and that is our own practices as, as, as a community pub in which we had to kind of completely shut down and, and look to how we would maintain our staff team um, keeping those people occupied. But as a pub, it is it is the hub of our community, and that's why we we kind of invested so much time and energy in in, in opening the pub. So there's a lot of people, vulnerable people, also that that use that as a, as a space to connect with others. So we've our first thought is how we could continue to do that virtually, and so we've spent a lot of energy uh, reaching out to a multitude of platforms to keep people connected, to keep people feeling like they weren't completely isolated. Um, but that's that's been our our, our our key approach to trying to maintain some sort of connectivity and add a sense of community rather rather than people losing their you know mm. technology certainly of, yeah um yeah, do carry on Brian. No, that was, that was it, really. Ah, okay, so um, what I was going to say there was um, technology certainly has proven really important in keeping us connected during this time because the social isolation elements of the lockdown has really amplified the importance of mental health and well-being. Um, but at the same time, there is also, in some cases, no replica for that face-to-face human interaction, which I think we did take for granted to a degree pre-pandemic for sure. So with that in mm-hmm. mind say we fast forward one or two years when COVID-19 is no longer an issue, hopefully, and we do have a working vaccine for this. Can you ever see sort of conventional workplaces, office environments, for example, ever being back the way they were? Or do you think that work from home is actually going to be the future now? I think it's certainly fast forwarded, the the move towards home working. Um, But I don't think it's going to replace, as you say, that face-to-face and that contact completely. But it will it will uh, it will bring a number of challenges up um, for for retail and and, and those who, who who work with commercial spaces 
as their kind of income generator, as, as well as ourselves. One of one of our kind of income streams is through uh, a community hub. And, and as I said before, we do support other social enterprises, but we also support them in terms of providing um, workspace. So there's a, there's a lot of challenges that we're going to face over the next year, two years. And we'll, a lot of companies are going to have to really look at how how they balance that out in terms of their own practice, in terms of their own team, and as well as the, the income streams that they've depended upon um, over the years. A lot of those are going to come vanish, well, diminish at least severely over the next few years. And with regards to um, the mental health and well-being of people during this time, of course, they are very important aspects of leadership. And leaders have really had to sort of take a stand in safeguarding the well-being of their staff during this time. But when you're sort of sucked into the hectic world of running a business or organisation in the everyday environment, it can be difficult sometimes to take a step back when you need to, let alone during a crisis like this where you're having to step up to the plate, do an awful lot of reassuring, a lot of inspiring, keeping people motivated. So during a time like that, how is it that you sort of look after your own mental health? That's, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I've always believed in, in, in generous leadership. Um, and by that, I mean um, being um, generous with your time uh, and uh, with, with, with your staff team and, and with, with the people that you work with. And so what, what that has generated for me is, is, is a support system for, for me also. So it's not just about um, the, the leader being out there on his own and kind of responsible for you know, carrying the, the, the success and all the things that leaders are, are to do are, 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 are kind of tasked to do um, the through generous leadership that's kind of created um, support um, support means for me as well just through that generous leadership um, um, so yeah I'm, I'm quite fortunate to have a team that, that mm. recognise that you know there is a there's a need for us all to be supported as well as, my, as, well as myself and where is it sort of in your leadership role that you tend to draw inspiration from? Because it's natural that people will look to a leadership figure for inspiration. But when you are the leader yourself and there isn't really anybody above you to do that for, I mean, where where do you look to when you want a bit of inspiration and direction of your own? Well, we're fortunate up here, up here in the north um, to have two really good metro mayors, mm. one being Steve Brotherham. And the other, the other men's double <laughs> yeah, across across uh, in Manchester, and those two, those two guys, uh, you know, um, just more so of, of late, um, have concentrated on being mindful that the community is is in need and in need of support. So by by um, supporting others, that that's a kind of there is an enrichment for yourself um, uh, as as part of that. So. As I say, we've got two great metro mayors in, in Liverpool and Manchester, and, and they're the people I, that I've looked to over the past few months to kind of inspire me. And with regards to um, what 
safe regeneration limited actually does um over the uh, the next few months as we start to hopefully emerge from the uh, the COVID situation um there is this idea that there will be more and more people that are going to be in need of sort of social um, housing health social care services just because of the impact that the pandemic is going to have had um are you anticipating that your services are going to be sort of stretched even as time goes on and we eventually do emerge from all of this yeah, I, I do. In, in short, um, I think we've we've um, we've we've yet to fully understand the the effect on on mental health of people. Um, and I think going into the second period of, of lockdown and restrictions, um, the resilience just isn't there as it was in the first in the first round. I think there's a, there's a lot of fear. Um, in terms of what the effect will be, because we've been through it once, we know how tough it can be. Mm. Um, so I, I, I feel there is going to be a, a great deal of need um, across the board. It won't be, you know, people in communities that typically, you know, need support. I think it's going to be at real high level uh, and professional uh, level where people. Just because we tend to just get through it, don't we? We tend to just push on through. So mm. I think um, we need to kind of look um, after our, our leaders as well. I think we need to we need to we need to take some time to to to, to ensure that those leaders that have that are pushed on through that have just you know dropped the shoulders, so to speak, and just try to to, to, to keep going and keep the things moving forward. I think we need to really take care of our leaders. I think that's very right. I think we certainly do. And um, thinking about sort of uh, moving away from the doom and gloom of the ongoing situation now, um, at this point um, in time on the show, Brian, we are trying to find some kind of silver lining in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us. And one of the things that we have seen is that so many people have embraced this opportunity as a time to learn more about themselves, about how resilient they are, about the people around them. Is there anything like that that you can take as a positive from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Well, as you say, to some some extent, you know, the day-to-day activities that we undertake have kind of fell away so we've had time to think and reflect and and develop um, and we've we've continued to develop um, opportunities and projects that that will kind of when we emerge from this will 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 I'm really looking forward to delivering a lot of the work that we developed and we've secured um, some contractual work for across Europe so that'll mean we, we will be able to take a lot of young people from from the Merseyside area to experience Europe and to, to experience um, different viewpoints, uh, specifically around climate change, because that was, mm-hmm. you know, if, with it, if Brexit wasn't there and if uh, COVID wasn't there, we'd all be talking about climate change. We'd all be focused on that. And so we managed to develop some projects, work with young people to develop, young uh, youth councils to begin to address and, and, and look at how we were, how we're going to address these major issues. So I suppose if there's any positive from, from the past uh, few months, it's that we've we've had the opportunity to develop projects that mm. that have the opportunity to to affect and address the, the, the biggest issue in my mind, 
post, uh, you know, COVID is, is is put to bed. Hopefully, is climate, and so that's that's something that we've we've um, we've focused our energies off on trying to find something positive to springboard out of into next year. It is something that certainly can't be neglected going forward because what a lot of people are saying is that what is going on with climate, with global warming, it has had a hand in causing the COVID situation as it is. Um, the fact that we are humans of habit, the way that we construct our habitats, it's all contributing to what is going on. And it is something that we can't ignore. And the majority of the population now, according to so many different surveys, now favours a green economic recovery from the COVID situation. So let us hope that we do begin to see that in the uh, the future as we do come out of this. And thinking about the future now, Brian, just because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time, um, over the, uh, the next 12 months, I know we don't have a crystal ball in front of us, but in an ideal world, where is it that you'd like Safe Regeneration to be this time next year? And what are you hoping to have achieved with everything that is going on? Well, 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 during the, the the pandemic, we've managed to submit uh, our plan application for what we believe to be the, the largest community-led capital program, um, and that involves um, the creation of 187 uh, affordable homes. Um, we we look to rebuild our, our centre as a community business centre, and we reopen the pub with the addition of a hotel and a restaurant. So. All being well, in the next few weeks we'll have our plan application um, deemed successful, and we can move forward into building building uh, a, a, a project that will will look towards an inclusive economy, and will look towards t- taking the, the the wealth that was generated and keeping it in with communities and reinvesting it in communities. So. We're really positive um, for, for next year. As you say, if we can get through this pandemic and, and look to, to put that to bed, and, and but we're talking about building something significant that can be an example, an example for other communities across the UK. So we're, we're, we're positive about the future. That's really positive to hear, uh, Brian. Um, and it is infectious. We could all do with um, a dose of positivity at the moment to help get us through this. So let us really hope um, and wish you all the best that those visions can start to be borne out before too long and we aren't going to be stuck in this rut for too much longer. And, you know, I, you, actually, I actually think just given how inspiring it's been having you join us on the show today, it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next 12 months as well and just see how some of your plans are starting to come to fruition. And I really hope at that point that there will be some positive news to be shared i look forward to that scott thank you i'd really welcome that as well brian i've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves with us today it's been a real pleasure and um, most importantly as well until we do hopefully get to speak again please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet but let's keep our fingers crossed that it won't be too much longer thank you scott you take care And I'd also like to reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning into the programme as well. Please do look after yourselves, be considerate of others and stay well because it makes such a difference in saving lives. Um, For me, it was a pleasure to welcome Safe Regeneration Limited CEO Brian Dorr onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During an illustrious professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. City among other clubs, but he remains most well known, of course, for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That, to this day, makes Sir Jeff Hurst the only man in the world 
in history, in fact, to have, secu- to have actually scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Um, so Jeff will be coming onto the programme, not just to look back at that very famous game, but he'll be talking about some of the leadership highlights of his illustrious career, as well as leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS, who have been doing all they can during this most trying time. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back 
to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper. By that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships, but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out, thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. 
Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you, you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your 
career after it's playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as 
Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and ahead of us. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought it was a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62-63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, 
I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him 
purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. You know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, we, it was a great time with the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably 
that's happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing the group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.